We return to Second uh, Kings, Second Kings, and today we're at chapter ten. If you are visiting with us today, we've been working through uh, the Old Testament book of book of books of the Kings, which is really one book. We're at Second Kings, chapter ten, which is uh, the second half of a story that began in chapter nine, and it has more to do with bloodshed and variety of ways of dying than you might find comfortable, but this really is God's Word, Second Kings chapter 10. And while you turn there, let me just simply express my thanks to you for your prayers and kind words as I went last week to be with my family in Canada uh, following the uh, unexpected death of my nephew. I'm glad I went. They were glad I was there, but it's great to be home. 2 Kings, chapter 10. Listen to God's word. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, And there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons. Select the best and fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of that city who were bringing them up. And as soon as a letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at beth Echad of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. 
He said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth-Eked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand. Jehu took him up with him in the chariot, and he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal, so they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal. And the house of Baal was filled from one end to another. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of these whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Reubenites, and the Manassites, from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might 
Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Sometimes justice delayed still results in justice. We have in 2 Kings chapter 10 a continuation of some of the devastation and destruction and judgment of chapter 9. And here, though, we have in sort of three sections that I want to look with you this morning at. First, the destruction and elimination of the house of Ahab. Then the destruction and the elimination of the house of Baal. And then the chapter ends with a section of commentary, evaluation, some summary that will invite us to think as well about what is going on in this chapter, a chapter you might easily imagine to be a simple excess of brutality and violence. First, though, in the first 17 verses, we have the story of the destruction, annihilation, really, of the house of Ahab. After killing Joram, king of Israel, the son of Ahab, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, and the friend of Joram, married into the family, and killing Jezebel, Ahab's wife, by making her fly out the window, Jehu stays in Jezreel. Jezreel is, it had been, the former capital of the north. It's now largely a military Outpost. It's some 15 miles to the north of Samaria, which had been made capital by Omri, Ahab's father. That will not be on the quiz, but it's helpful to know here that it's not that far from, uh, from Samaria. From Jezreel, Jehu sends a letter. And he sends a letter to the people in power in the capital city. He sends a letter to the elders, the guardians, the keepers of the king's sons, and it's a kind of a challenge. Take the best of the sons, the fittest, the most capable of Ahab's sons, and put them on the throne. You've got cities, you have chariots, you have weapons. Put them on the throne, and let's have it out. They're to select their champion from among Ahab's sons, put him on the throne to represent Ahab's line and defend the family's right and claim to the throne. But notice the reaction the letter receives when it makes its way to Samaria. Jehu's reputation uh, precedes him. They know he has been successful in killing two kings, and they've probably also heard of the death of Jezebel. Again, all that taking place in Jezreel. And so they simply respond to say, we're your servants. We will do whatever you ask of us. So he responds back with another letter, and it becomes a test of their loyalty, but will also accomplish some good things for him. Give me the heads of Ahab's sons by tomorrow morning. Everything's happening very quickly here. I hope you notice that. Because notice again their immediate response, verse 7. The heads of the 70 sons are separated from their bodies, placed in the baskets, and overnighted to Jezreel. 
And just for fun, I looked this up, and the weight of an average human head is 11 pounds. Multiply that by 70, you have 770 pounds of heads sent by courier overnight, express delivery in baskets. And you can just see the messenger in verse 8 coming to tell uh, the king, uh, as I've read somewhere else, he comes and says, uh, uh, Sir, the heads you ordered, they're in already. And so Jehu comes and, he, and he, he wants to make a visible sign of what is going on. And so he has them stack these heads into piles at the gates of the city. What I didn't find was how big of a stack that would be, but you can only imagine 35 heads on each side. It's a demonstration, in a way, of the kind of loyalty Jehu has. It's a loyalty born out of fear, to be absolutely sure. But notice how he comes out in the morning when everyone comes and sees these two piles of heads, and he makes it looked like this is some kind of a mystery. He takes ownership of his conspiracy against his master, the kings, but he says, who did this? Couldn't have been I. I was here with you, and these heads just showed up overnight. But then he interprets this as a fulfillment of the Lord's word as evidence that the word of God will never fail. It will never fall to the ground without accomplishing its purpose. He's demonstrating not only the validity of God's word, but the power of God's word and of God himself who will keep his promises that he had made to Elijah. And then not to be missed, verse 11, Jehu cleans up Jezreel. And he kills everyone and all those who are in any way associated with Ahab. That's just in Jezreel. And then verse 12, he heads over to Samaria. The whooping will continue. On the way, he meets up with a band of servants of the king Ahaziah. And we know from chapter 9, Ahaziah was king of Judah, had also died in the same way as had Joram, that is, killed by an arrow, fired either by Jehu or by one of his servants. And you wonder now, these friends of Ahaziah, you wonder how much they know. It's not clear when they have this conversation, it's not clear if they are going up to Samaria to honor the sons of Ahab and Jezebel or to avenge them. They are servants of Ahaziah who'd been married into the Ahab line. And so Jehu, as all, for all he knows, imagines these at least to be loyal to Ahab and therefore worthy of death, which is what he does. All 42 of them are killed. And then we have this strange little meeting with Jehonadab, son of Rechab, and there's very little we know about this man. In fact, he uh, only shows up here, and then his descendants will show up in the book of Jeremiah. And as best we can guess, they seem like they're kind of a, a religious rite, if you will, zealous for the honor of the Lord. Jehu seems to know him, knows more about him than we do. 
And after affirming their mutual loyalty, he offers him a lift to Samaria so that he can be a witness, so he can watch Jehu in action. And once there, Jehu kills everyone else related to Ahab. He wipes them out. And again, we're told it's according to the word of the Lord through Elijah the prophet. All this as God's judgment on Ahab, not seen in his lifetime because of his humility toward the Lord at the end and God's promise of sending this judgment in a delayed way. But Jehu isn't done. The house of Ahab is annihilated. And now we get to this section where there's a, the house of, of Baal will be annihilated. As you're reading this, I wondered if you thought, well, this seems strange that after doing what Jehu did, he comes to Samaria and says, let's have a great party for Baal. Call everyone. Let's have a great sacrifice, a great feast in honor of this false god who you have placed your trust in for so long. And again, it might come as a bit of a shock until we keep reading and we get that editorial comment in verse 19. Jehu did this with cunning. That is, in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. But he issues an an order as if there's a new sheriff in town. Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. We know Ahab did not serve Baal a little, but rather quite a lot. Summon all the prophets for a great sacrifice. Any who come will, uh, anyone rather who does not come will be put to death. So they set apart a solemn assembly. The summons are issued. The prophets and worshipers of Baal come. And just for emphasis, we're told, verse 21, there was not a man left who did not come. Jehu has the vestments brought out for them, which will be very helpful in identifying them uh, just when the time comes. And then Jehu goes one step further, and he makes sure that there are no Yahweh worshipers in the building. So when the room is cleared of anyone who might be worshiping Yahweh, and when it is filled with worshipers of Baal, they have a sacrifice. And after the sacrifice is over, he summons the 80 men he has positioned around the temple, and they kill everyone who is in the temple. They go into the inner room, which sounds a little bit familiar to us when we think of temples, and they find the monument, the pillar that has been uh, raised in honor of probably representing in some way Baal, and they destroy it. They burn it, they destroy it, they destroy the temple, and they turn this spot into a latrine. Probably some kind of a, a combination of a trash pile and a public restroom. Subjecting the memory of Baal to a similar kind of scatological indignity we saw with Jezebel. From verse 28 to the end of the chapter, we're given a kind of commentary on an evaluation of all this. He's destroyed, wiped out the house of Ahab. He's destroyed, wiped out the Baal prophets and worshipers. What are we to make of this? Doesn't it seem rather extreme? 
Why does he have the heads chopped off of all the sons of Ahab so that they will, those heads will never be able to wear a crown? Why does he completely obliterate and destroy every worshiper of Baal? And along the way, every friend or disciple or associate or hanger-on of Ahab. We get this evaluation in the third section of Jehu's 28-year reign. Not only does he wipe out the line of Ahab, bringing to an end a royal dynasty. Not only does he wipe out Baal and every worshiper, but we are going to read, as we go through the rest of 2 Kings, we will find there is no other reference to Baal or to worshipers of Baal except retroactively to this. There's no sign of Baal worship the rest of the way through the book of Kings. Jehu's campaign was successful. What he ends up doing is actually turning back the clock of religious worship to pre-Ahab days, which sounds great, and in some ways it is. But the text is quick to note, and does so twice, that for all of his success in eliminating the Ahab line, and for all of his success in wiping out the worshipers and prophets of Baal, Jehu did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam. And for that, you need to go all the way back to the earliest days of the division of the kingdom. One kingdom under David, one kingdom under Solomon, and the kingdom divides, and we're dealing here with stories in the north in Israel. And what had Jeroboam done? He said, I don't want my people to be tempted to go back to Jerusalem to worship God there. So I'm going to set up two golden calves, one in the south, pretty near actually the border with, uh, with Judah, and one to the north, and it'll be easy for anyone who wants to worship to go and worship there. And for all Jehu did in turning back the worship clock to pre-Ahab days, he doesn't do anything with those golden calves. And so for his positive response to God's call on his life in wiping out Ahab and together with Ahab's family wiping out Baal, the Lord rewards him. And the Lord rewards him with this promise that the throne is going to belong to him, to his son, to his grandson, and his great-grandson for generations. That sounds pretty good as well. But we're going to read much later in the prophet Hosea, Jehu's descendants do not ever reach his level of obedience. They will not match his performance, and Hosea will pronounce judgment on the house of Jehu that will be commensurate with the judgment Jehu has meted out on the house of Ahab. Once again, you can step back. We can, we should. We step back and say, what in the world is going on in this story? This is such a bloody mess. And it's, a, it's extreme and isn't it rather excessive? What kind of a God would let this kind of a thing go on among his own people? 
The whole section we've been in is more like a catalog on how the ways you can kill people. Remember, there's an asphyxiation by Hazael. I kind of like this word too, an exsanguination of Joram. He leaks all his blood out after he was hit with an arrow. The defenestration of Jezebel tossed out the window. And now the decapitation of Ahab's sons. all followed by this annihilation of Ahab's line and everyone associated with him. And again, we might think Jehu goes way too far in his acts of judgment. But the reality is, he didn't go far enough. Notice he's commended for what he did, but at the same time we are told that during Jehu's lifetime, the kingdom began to shrink. Hazael, remember Hazael, the king of Syria, continues in his string of victories and he begins to eat away at the edges of the land, seizing control, especially of the land east of the Jordan. And that can only be seen and is confirmed because of what we know about how Hazael was anointed to be king and for what purpose. It can only be seen as an act of God's judgment against his people Israel. This loss of territory is itself a foreshadowing of what is going to come. But again, we can still ask, what in the world do we make of all this destruction, these acts of butchery? Let me take you back and let you listen to a little bit of an extended passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This, of course, is the word of God coming to the people of God as they're about to enter into the land God is giving them. When Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all those people, seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashering, their poles, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Notice what's happening here. Notice the complete degradation of God's people that God would raise up Jehu and have him devote to destruction Ahab's family, their own people. But to do to him and his family what the Lord had said the people of Israel were to do to all the foreign nations occupying the land when they came in. 
Jehu is enacting this kind of holy ban, a devotion to destruction without mercy, without saving anyone. And this bloody mess is all a result of the Lord's promise, his commitment to justice and mercy and judgment when Ahab unlawfully seized land from Naboth, when Jezebel sought to kill Elijah after that contest on Mount Carmel, when the Lord demonstrated his great power, his vast superiority over Baal and his prophets who were not able to summon fire from heaven. And as the Lord promised to do through Jehu when Elisha anointed him king. In other words, all this is coming together by divine appointment in response to human and kingly sin. When they entered into the land in the first place, the Lord used his people, was intended to have them wipe out everyone before them, which is hardly a program of evangelism, isn't it? What is it? It's judgment on them for their years of following other gods and that they might not tempt his people to follow those gods. In other words, the Lord was showing he takes seriously the sins of the king in leading people into idolatry. He is a jealous God who will not, is not willing to share the devotion and affection owed to him with any other God. He is still the same God today. He is unwilling to share the loyalty and devotion and worship he deserves with any other God. From Jehu, we learn this kind of course correction, this turning back of the clock, is good and commendable. But it's not going to be able ultimately to succeed in changing the hearts of God's people. At this point in the story, we are only about 100 years from the northern tribes of Israel being scattered and eradicated, overrun, and dispersed by the Assyrians. This is the kind of story that reminds us of life in our generation, life in and around this world. This is a story that reminds us we need a king who will utterly eradicate evil and all the forces of evil. We know that forced worship is unsustainable, merely performative. We need a king who can turn the hearts of his people toward true worship, true devotion of the Lord our God. And this is, of course, what we get with Jesus. You remember, because I've said this before, Jesus in his first sermon in Luke chapter 4 says he has come this day, his appearance is coming, has come rather, to confirm, to fulfill God's promises through Isaiah that he would send one who would proclaim good news, who would bring about the year of the Lord's favor, and who left off that second part of the couplet and the day of judgment of our God. Why? Because Jesus did not come with a sword to kill. 
Jesus did not come to separate heads from bodies or even to destroy false worshipers, but rather to give to them by his word of grace, salvation, accomplished in his death and resurrection, that he would invite those who were opposed to him to know him and love him and follow him. He doesn't come with the sword, but with words of grace, and he earns victory in his death and resurrection over Satan and over all the forces of evil. He will return to heaven with his, to be with his Father, and by his Spirit, change hearts and lives from within. He will change everlastingly, hearts renewed now to offer worship to the God who will not share his honor and glory with another. And the same Jesus is going to come back one day, the day of judgment of our Lord, which is delayed. And as I said, sometimes justice delayed still results in justice. He's going to come back finally, fully to destroy the enemy fully and finally to save all those who are trusting in him and fully and finally to exact the kind of justice and judgment and vengeance that will make Jehu's work here look like the work of an amateur. That judgment will be unleashed on all those who persist in their rejection of Jesus. All those who worship anyone or anything other than the one living, true God made known to us in His Son, our eternal King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who will usher us into His eternal presence in the fullness of joy in a new heavens and a new earth without borders or boundaries, without enemy or opposition, without limits and without end. And the table in front of us today is all the reminder we need. Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, absorbed and satisfied the wrath of God due to all those who are by birth false worshipers. And by his spirit, renews our hearts and minds makes us into willing servants who want only to worship Him, who don't do this perfectly, but who are relying on Him for forgiveness again and again until He comes back. This table reminds us, Jesus absorbed the wrath and the judgment that was headed your way. And Jesus came out the other side so that you can too. Let's pray. Father, stories like these do grab our attention. It's hard to imagine the kind of bloodshed and violence. Families and friends bereft of loved ones, Lord, we're amazed that these stories are stuck in your word, that they are your word. We thank you, Father, for what you teach us everywhere else of the judgment that is coming. A judgment that will be directed toward all those who are still outside of Christ. A judgment that has been averted and absorbed. 
for us by Christ. So thank you, Lord, for the delay in the day of judgment. For some of us, we really do long for it because we know then all things will be made right. We also recognize in this delay there is time for those who are worshiping something other than you to turn, to be drawn to the glorious beauty of your splendor and holiness, to worship you as you deserve. Receive our thanks. Hear our prayer. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.